0: Verses 1 through 21. And God's word says this. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Please be seated. heard about Spirit, let's pray and ask God's help for the Holy Spirit even as we interact with this text. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would help us open our eyes. Uh, Some of us may uh, be so familiar with this passage that it'll be good for us uh, to uh, see, uh, be reminded of what we've already seen and known. For others, this might be brand new material from your word. And we ask that you would help uh, all of us, enable us to get what you want for us to get. And we thank you for Jesus, who this passage points to. In his name we pray, amen. This is a very, very famous and familiar passage. I was in a nursing home one time with a um visiting a a lady and I would go and and uh, she just slowly deteriorated um before she really went downhill uh she she forgot a lot of what she knew but when I would say John 3:16 she would join in and and she just nodded her head one time and she said that pretty much sums it all up doesn't it and I said yes it does Yes, it does. And then we'd go to sing, Jesus Loves Me, and she knew that one, and, and the old, almost comatose lady in the other bed would join in, and I, I stopped kind of singing just to listen. Uh, we know these things, and there's a generation, uh, perhaps, that really learned verses like John 3.16 and the 23rd Psalm and, and things like that were just part and parcel of what it meant to grow up in a church. Uh, That may not be the case for people these days. It was very interesting for me uh, to to lean and and to read what uh, Calvin said in his commentaries. And I thought, boy, in his day, John 3.16 didn't have the cachet that it does now. And he wasn't writing and examining it as John 3.16. He was just doing it as part of this text, as part of God's truth. And it was very interesting to approach it that way. I'm hoping that that's how we're able to do that today, if this is so familiar. Uh, we just can't say, I can't say and you can't say or shouldn't say, oh, I know all that. <laughs> what's next? Um, let's look at this text together. And let's see what's going on. Um, uh, four points uh, in, this, in this passage, just to help us as we, as we look at it. It uh, divides itself that way. First is a ruler's misgivings. That's the first two verses. Then a teacher's curriculum. And that, I didn't write those. That's 3, three through 15. God's motivation. And finally, godly results. And we'll give the verse breakdown when we get there. But first of all, a ruler's misgivings. The context of this, if you've been following along, been here the last two weeks, or listened to the sermons, or know the text, is Jesus' ministry has just begun. First miracle, uh, the wedding at Cana. He comes to Jerusalem. Not everyone in Jerusalem would have heard about the water into wine, but the disciples certainly did, and it was the kickoff. Uh, Then what's immediately next? He goes into the temple and he overturns uh, the tables of the money changers. And he talks about what the house of God is supposed to be, what those sacrifices are, who they point to, himself. And then there's these non, uh, non-described or non-given uh, to us by John miracles that he did. It says he did many signs and miracles uh, to the point where people saw those signs And they came and they wanted to follow him because of those signs. And he said no, because he knew their hearts. But it wasn't just the commoner and it wasn't just the disciples that were making note of Jesus' signs. The religious elite, the ones who had the monopoly on on religious worship, were also watching. And here's a man from that group that, is also uh, intrigued, struck by Jesus' signs that he did. He would have quite likely been in meetings where people talked about, who is this rabble-rouser? How dare he come into the temple and, and do this? This is the way we do things. And he's watching and he's listening. We don't know what he's saying and contributing to this, but he's got to find out for himself. Something's happening in Nicodemus's. Life. And so he comes by night. Um, Possibly for the secrecy. Probably for the secrecy. We could say that. We don't know exactly why he came at night. Maybe he just had to work all day and night was the only time. But it would seem like he came uh, under the cover of darkness. Um, When John writes about darkness... There's a connotation of darkness tied in with spiritual darkness, and the physical and the spiritual is there. Uh, John 9.4, where Jesus said, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. John 11.10, But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. Verses 13, 21, and 30 at the uh, Last Supper, Jesus starts out by saying, one of you will betray me. And that passage ends up with this. So after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out, and John adds, and it was night. And so night is pictured by the writer and by Jesus' words as not just a physical night, but there's a spiritual connotation to this. And here comes Nicodemus by night in to see Jesus. A backdrop of darkness, secrecy, perhaps shame. Uh, maybe they could ruin his career. Uh, maybe it would get out on Facebook, somebody taking a or Instagram, somebody taking a picture of, of them talking. And he doesn't want anything getting out uh, that could hurt his status. But he has to know. There's something about Jesus' works. There's something that we would say is going on spiritually. He has to know. And so he comes by night. He called him Rabbi. You see that in, in verse uh, 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Well, in that structure, uh, Jesus did not go through the same universities or seminaries or theological training that uh would have given him the right to be called rabbi, especially by a rabbi, by a teacher. But there's something where uh, we see Nicodemus's heart. He doesn't say it ironically. He says, rabbi. And even though Jesus had not earned that title in the same worldly way, uh, this is the way that Nicodemus saw him. Maybe a minor act of rebellion. Uh, who knows what had been going on in Nicodemus's heart, preparing him for this. But he says, Rabbi. And then he says, God is with you. No one can do these things without God. And he gives credit where credit is due. You remember later, they would say when Jesus was performing the miracles and doing the signs, they would say, he does these things from his father, the devil. Um, that's not what Nicodemus said. He said it, and it's presented as straightforward. Listen, he says, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And it does make me wonder, what were those signs he did? What was that? Why did John leave that out? We could have a a Bible that had a few more pages in it just to find out. But maybe in heaven we find out. But John, remember, said there's a lot of things that Jesus did. Books couldn't contain these things. So this must have been quite the whirlwind of activity as Jesus kicked off his ministry to attract regular people, to attract even the religious. We see this ruler's misgivings about his own life and what he had poured into. There's an immediate application. We won't wait till the end to tie them all up. Immediately, how does this point and these thoughts apply Uh, to our lives here. The question is, are there people like this, people who will eventually come to faith, and these first steps are some misgivings about the world's narrative? And I think so. And it's not limited to Nicodemus or to people like C.S. Lewis, who had years of preparation uh, before, boom, he was converted. People are starting to think. Somebody asked in men's group, do you think with all of this absolute utter craziness that we never saw coming in the world, uh, this that we grew up with where things were pretty stable and we knew there was bad and good, but it was more stability and now there is less stability, do you think it's making people question the world's narrative and do you think this is a time for them to ask spiritual thoughts? And there was general agreement among our men and our men's group that, yes, these are the conversations they're having. People saying something's going on. There's less of a satisfaction with the world. Uh, You put your faith in an institution, uh, it lets you down. It surprises you. And things aren't what they seem. And maybe, maybe, uh, how about if I say certainly, certainly, the Lord is behind these things. And we don't know but that, that there is going to be a, a, a along with the dissatisfaction of the world's gods, a, a turning to the real God. And the Holy Spirit may be doing this just as we see the Lord working in Nicodemus' life at that time. So Jesus then takes this leader, this teacher, and he challenges his curriculum. Right away, this is verses 3 through 15, right away Jesus answers him. And you see all the times in here he goes, King James would say, verily, verily, or truly, truly. Uh, uh, Three times in this text, he says this, truly, truly in this time, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So here's Nicodemus uh, purporting to see glimpses of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, you can't really see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Several interpretations of this passage and explanations, some of them just tied to the history of the commentators. Uh, many are valid on their face. But Nicodemus's response, we know what he's not thinking. Nicodemus is not thinking by his answer when he says, can a guy be born again? Come on, can I crawl back up into my mother's womb and be born again and start over? He didn't really think Jesus was talking about reincarnation. Uh, Here's a rabbi talking to a rabbi. They're talking in metaphor. Jesus is saying, Nick, you have got to examine everything you've put your faith in. You've got to re-examine all of your beliefs. Essentially, you have to start over. And the Christian life is like being born again and learning the language and learning to trust your father and your mother, learning to uh, walk spiritually. Uh, You've built a career. And your career is on sinking sand. Where somebody said, what if you... Uh, climbed the ladder of success all the way to the top, and you found out it was leaning against the wrong wall. That's what you've got to do get right back down and start over again. I used to tell the teenagers uh, you know, they get caught doing something, sitting in the office. There's the teen, there's their parents, pretty glum. <laughs> Figure out which parents are mad, which is, which is grace, how are we going to work with this? And, and we would always tell the teens the same thing. One, God must love you very much or you wouldn't have gotten caught. The ones who don't get caught, that are just uh, let go, uh, uh, this is God, this is God's grace. But then I would always say this you've built this wall of trust with your parents and you've painstakingly through your 8-year-old years, through your 12-year-old years, you've made good decisions, 13, 14, and now you're 17, and you've blown it, and you've fallen all the way back to the bottom of that cliff. You've got to start over and build that trust. You have betrayed that. And there's some pain, but you've got to start again. Uh, That's hard. It's hard in a marriage when a Husband or wife has to rebuild the trust of the spouse. It's hard for a kid, and it's hard for Nicodemus to start over, to start over. And Jesus is saying, everything that you've constructed in your mind, even as you've used Holy Scripture, has to be rebuilt the right way. And Nicodemus said, can I even do that? The Bible talks about salvation being a whole revolution of thinking and living. Here it's described as being born again and starting over. Other places it's described as turning from death to life or being blind to seeing. And Jesus said, yes, it is radical. Salvation is not something you just add to what you've got and keep on going, and that just like like changing the batteries in in your battery pack, uh, this is revolutionary. Christianity is different, and you need this, Nicodemus. Nicodemus said, "How can a man be born when he's old? Can he can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Can I start over?" And Jesus said, "Another truly, truly I say to you." Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Uh, some people use this wrongly to say that uh, baptism is part of your salvation. You have to be born of the Holy Spirit, then you have to be baptized. And baptism, uh, which we know is a work, uh, baptism will not save anyone. It's your faith in Christ. And just look at uh, water and Spirit, Jesus talking uh, interchangeably, as he will do with Spirit and wind. Uh, the reason why all of us who baptize, whatever our our baptismal mode, but but if there's a Christian church that baptizes, uh, we will recognize, for instance, uh, Trinitarian, baptized in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and water, because water represents the Holy Spirit. Uh, And so born of the Spirit, born of the water, you've got to be born again. It's got to be a spiritual thing. Then he goes on to talk about this, uh, spirit and wind, which is the same Hebrew word, ruah, spirit, breath, wind. And he says this, uh, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. You don't see the wind, you see the effects of the wind. Holy Spirit moving and sweeping through uh, places, uh, through hearts of people. I saw the effects of it when I looked at those three young ladies uh, in college at the University of Oklahoma, talking and bearing witness to faith in God and to real joy and taking a platform where someone asked a question and they're able to point that to God, and you say, "That's Holy Spirit." I think was it just now? Somebody it might have been, might have been Mark. I don't know. But it was somebody just said what I was thinking as they went from person, Christian young lady to Christian young lady to Christian young lady. I was waiting for one of them to to blow, to blow it and undo all of it, and it didn't happen. I said, "There's a Holy Spirit, something or other, and it's hope when you see." God saving people, God encouraging people, and people able to live for him uh, when it doesn't make sense, when you're going to get canceled out and and ridiculed and, and despised for speaking the truth, and you see them do it anyway. And you say, that's got to be the spirit inside of somebody helping them and encouraging them. The spirit blows where the spirit blows. You don't see the wind, but you see the effects. And you see what God does in the lives of people. And then uh, it's divided. Some of them think that, that Jesus really comes down hard on Nicodemus. Um, we have the printed text. We don't get to hear the inflection of the voice. Uh, we don't have that advantage. Um, And so we can just read and maybe we just read it the way we would say it or or what we would be thinking. At any rate, Jesus did question Nicodemus, perhaps harshly, perhaps not. But in verse 10, Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. You're the one who's been trusted with God's word. And you don't get it? Now, we talked a little bit yesterday morning with the men's group about, about God's word being not just inerrant, but infallible. And people these days are saying, well, I can buy the inerrancy, see I'm a good evangelical, but the infallible on some things, maybe not. And, and, and R.C. gave a good distinction on that. And the discussion yesterday morning was, Jesus believed the scriptures to be not just inerrant, but infallible. And Jesus referred to the Old Testament as absolute truth. And I think we're pretty smart, we're pretty wise, we're pretty godly, we're right if we were to do the same thing. Uh, Don't don't find little smart-sounding ways to compromise your belief in, in the infallibility and inerrancy of God's word. And Jesus said, listen, teacher of Israel, you should know these things. What's what's the Old Testament point to? What's it about? Well, somebody said this, and this is a good way. The New Testament is in the Old concealed. The Old Testament is in the New revealed. And we can look and see the way that Paul used Old Testament scriptures to say it all pointed to Christ, to see the way that Jesus said words like, it is written, which in that language means it's settled, it's final. And the way Jesus referred to the Old Testament scriptures and applied them to himself, that's what what we must take our Old Testament to do, to to say, where is it telling us about Jesus? How does it point to Jesus? He said, teacher of Israel, you should understand this. Here's three Old Testament passages, all about Jesus, about the new birth, that Jesus is talking about. He's, he's saying you should know about the new birth. You should know that there's a change. That comes in a person. It's not external. But there's something inside. Uh, I'll read them real quick here. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. And the heart of your offspring. So that you will love the Lord your God. With all your heart. And with all your soul. That you may live. Jeremiah 31 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Within them, not external. There's the law, and it's God's law, and it's good, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful because it's God's law. But I'm going to put it in their hearts. I'll put it within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's what constitutes him being your God and you his people when Something is done in your heart regarding God and his law and his perfect law keeper who died on your behalf for where you fail. Ezekiel 36.26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will give put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And you will be brought to life you will be brought to life. I told some people about my mailman. I, I I don't think I did that in here. He's a he's a music guy. He's got some Christian um, background. Uh, we stop and talk a little bit. He's a he's a unique guy, and I like him a lot. I like I'm I'm glad he's our mailman. But he said to me, "Okay, Reverend, here's a question for you." He said. Next, he says, you don't have to do it now, but it's a possible sermon series, he said. Uh, Come up with ten songs, pop songs, that would exemplify uh, the Christian faith. Just the titles. I said, I can't find pop songs that do that, but I can get some titles that do Yeah, and I forget what one he gave. It was kind of an interesting one. Oh, I'll tell you what it was. He said he thought that Christianity could be exemplified, and he put it down to two songs. He said, Amazing Grace, of course. But he thought the Beatles, I Want to Hold Your Hand, would be a good one. And I said, I, you know, I'm not, not so sure about that. But I, I, next time I saw him, I said, I got three. I said, I've got a song by a guy that said, I Would Die for You. Um, and then I, I mentioned the title of the Chicago song, I Am Alive Again. And he liked that one because I wanted to talk about the resurrection. So I'm going to come up with some, some song titles, and I'm going to put scripture passages, because I think I'll go look, and that might be my way to, to help evangelize with him. But being alive again, I was thinking of Jesus being alive, but don't you know, don't you know that when you get saved, you also are alive again. There is a new birth. Jesus is talking about life, real life, true life. And there is a, a life that comes to a believer. And that's why Jesus said, be born again. And he saw the Old Testament as truth. And he says, you teacher of Israel that, that deals in these Old Testament scriptures, you should know. And then he comes to this one text that Rick read for us this morning in our Old Testament reading from Numbers. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. Um, Tempted to read it again, but I think maybe you remember. It, but but if you want to write it down or just look at it, the cover of your worship folder and look at it later. But twenty one verses four through nine, uh, the people had been delivered. God kept delivering, and yet they grumbled. And God sent the serpents there, and the serpents were devouring them. They grumbled against God and against Moses. And God said, "Put that serpent up there, the bronze serpent up there." and everyone who's bitten by these venomous, poisonous snakes that looks on that shall live. I looked for it in our hymn book. It's not in there, but uh, I bet, I bet uh, uh, probably, Victor, you sang it growing up in the Baptist uh, churches and the association. Look and live, my brother live. Look to Jesus now and live. I have a message from the Lord, hallelujah. Look to Jesus now and live. That was a song that I grew up singing. Uh, Look and live. And he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Uh, And he's taking this Old Testament passage and saying, here's how it points to Jesus. Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. First of all, the serpent. And I always wondered about this as a kid. Why would Jesus represent himself as a serpent in this text? Like, I thought the serpent was always the bad guy. That's the devil in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Snakes. Why does it have to be snakes? That type of a thing. No serpent. But why would Jesus call himself and refer to himself? Why was in this one a typology of Jesus as a serpent? I understand the perfect lamb. I understand the various uh, sacrifices, but why a serpent on a pole? Well, here's my buddy Calvin, the first of three Calvin quotes you get uh, this morning. Uh, He wrote this, The metaphor is not inappropriate or far-fetched, as it was only the outward appearance of a serpent That contained nothing within that was pestilential or venomous. So Christ clothed himself with the form of sinful flesh, which was yet pure and free from all sin, that he might cure us in the deadly wound of sin. And I like that. There was nothing in in the living serpent. They didn't fill it with snake venom. It was a serpent that was a serpent to heal him from the serpents. Christ was in the flesh, But it wasn't a flesh that was corrupted, that was sinful. Uh, And and that's a good picture. Not saying he was a serpent, but he's saying he could heal. I didn't go deep into that uh, this week. I just started thinking about it. And, And I hope I keep thinking. But this is similar, I believe, to Jesus' baptism. And people say, well, when Baptism by John, which is a different baptism than any of us do. Uh, why would Jesus get baptized? Because they were John was out there baptizing um, as a symbolic, I'm a sinner and I'm going to be washed from the sins. The Essenes did that and all of that. Why would Jesus do that? Because Jesus was in the flesh representing us as the second Adam. And so he was baptized, though without sin. And and as the serpent, so as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Uh, The other thing about the Son of Man being lifted up, and where I've been wrong, just in my thinking, cursory thinking, uh, I always thought, well, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's obviously, I said, obviously. And sometimes when you say obviously, that's the time to go back and, and check, is it really that obvious? Obviously, that's Jesus on the cross, being lifted up on the cross. And uh, once again, I I don't believe that's the case. That's what we first jump to. Jesus is saying, because he's not even been on the cross yet when he's talking about this. Jesus had to go to the cross. I'm not saying that. But the Son of Man being lifted up is a way of saying, proclaimed loudly and clearly Where all can see Jesus, the crucified, resurrected uh, Jesus being lifted up for the world to see. Here's one that Nicodemus would have known. This is Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And shall be lifted up above the hills. And all nations shall flow into it. Wait. The flowing is supposed to be downhill. But the nations will flow in to God's kingdom lifted up for all the sea. And all the nations shall flow into it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. Uh, Once again, in favor of Jesus lifted up, meaning Jesus proclaimed, all of his person and work proclaimed, Uh, Paul in Galatians 3.1 when the Galatians were reverting back to their legalism and he writes, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Well, it wasn't before their literal eyes because they weren't there when Jesus was portrayed. But in the preaching, Jesus on the cross was portrayed and they saw that. And Jesus is saying, once people see who I am sent from God to be the perfect sacrifice and to be the propitiation, to bear God's wrath instead of people who deserve it, absolutely, Jesus doing that. Uh, Once he's lifted up, then whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So it's more than just uh, having a good feeling about God, feeling positive about God. Uh, it's it's Jesus in his fullness described, proclaimed all about Jesus uh, including certainly his being lifted up and hung on that tree as sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. So that's that's that. that that's that's Nicodemus' teaching being changed, his curriculum all of a sudden as a teacher uh, changing and shifting radically after he's being challenged to be born again. Now, what about God's motivation? And this is the best to me. This is the best part of the text for me. And if you're exactly where I am in life, It'll be the best for you. If you're not, then it won't maybe be the best. But it, it, it's, it's going to be a challenger for the best. The motivation of God. What does it say? For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that he did this. God so loved. And it's a loveless world. And you are loved. For God so loved the world. That's why the motivation was his love for you, not your love for him. We love him because he first loved us. He loved you, not your works. This is what I think, this is the one I put in the worship folder. Uh, Calvin talking on John 3.16. And what I liked about it is that he was approaching it I just, I don't think, and I don't know if there's a way we could find out what were the big buzzword uh, verses of that day. And I think probably uh, there weren't so many as we have, you know, like Christian greeting card verses that we would call them. But this is, is is him talking and writing and thinking about this and saying, God so loved the world. So you could follow along in your in your folder or just listen. For God so and I think I put more in, in this quote than, than it stops in, in the worship folder, for God so loved the world, Christ opens up the first cause and, as it were, the source of our salvation, and He does so that no doubt may remain. for our minds cannot find calm repose until we arrive at the unmerited love of God as the whole matter of our salvation must not be sought anywhere else than in Christ, so we must see whence Christ came to us and why he was offered to be our Savior. Both points are distinctly stated to us, namely, that faith in Christ brings life to all and that Christ brought life because the Heavenly Father loves the human race, and wishes that they should not perish. He goes on to say, and this order ought to be carefully observed for such is the wicked ambition which belongs to our nature, that when the question relates to the origin of our salvation, we quickly form diabolical imaginations about our own merits. Accordingly, we imagine that God is reconciled to us because he has reckoned us worthy that he should look upon us. But scripture everywhere extols his pure and unmingled mercy which sets aside all merits. First cause, he loved you. Why? Why? Well, I can't answer that. We had this in our as a quote in our, our book that we read Wednesday morning. Spurgeon saying, and I think I quoted it last week because it made an impression, he says I know that that I had to be uh, loved by God first because after I was born there's nothing lovely in me. I, uh, God, I, know, I know what had to happen. I know I wouldn't have loved God and there was nothing good. And yet God's love, don't deny it. You need it more than anything else in a loveless world or a world where You know, love is love, love is this, love is that. What in the world is love? Infatuation, attraction, uh, wanting, you know, we love ourselves, I guess, more than God. But the source of your salvation is God's love. For God so loved the world that, and then the technical part comes. His motivation was not to condemn the world. Uh. Gave his only son, whoever believes in him, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. Jesus didn't need to come and pile on. Uh, The world was condemned. But God loved the world, and Jesus came to bring light and life. And that's your salvation that we're talking about here. Uh, Listen, Romans 3.23, talking about the world already condemned. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3 continued and are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. His goal in coming was not to condemn the world, uh, but that the world through him would be saved. He came to save you. You, you. Not the possibility of you, not if you're smart enough or good enough or... You had a good night's sleep and then heard the gospel. And then he came to save his people from their sins. Love. When it says that the world might be saved, people say, well, then, uh, the Bible, I've already found... People say, I'm not even that bright, but I found a contradiction in the Bible because not everybody's saved. So the world has to mean something. Uh, It's not every single person that's ever breathed there because the Bible says... Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the path that leads to heaven. Few there be that find it. Many there be that find that. And so when it talks about the world, what's he talking about? He's talking about all sorts of people from all over the world. Men, women, Jew, Greek, every economic strata. People are saved by God from all over. There's no group Sometimes people say, well, this group of sins, they don't get saved. Uh, Not true. Uh, In heaven, you're going to find all sorts of people. uh, If you look, I don't even know if we're going to care or or, or, all that, but in heaven, guaranteed, there are all sorts of people. And you just read Corinthians where Paul gives a sin list, and he, he talks about this. This won't find the kingdom of God, this, 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 this. And then he says, and such were some of you, but you've been washed. All people from that category saved by God because of God's love. For them. Final quote from Mr. Calvin from this section For as men are not easily convinced that God loves them, in order to remove all doubt, he has expressly stated that we are so very dear to God that on our account, he did not even spare his only begotten Son. That's how much love. How much do you love me? How much? Well, he didn't even spare his only begotten son. Since therefore God has most abundantly testified his love toward us, whoever is not satisfied with this testimony and still remains in doubt offers a high insult to Christ, as if Christ had been an ordinary man given up at random to death. But we ought rather to consider that in proportion to the estimation in which God holds his only begotten son, so much more the precious did our salvation appear to him for the ransom of which he chose that his only begotten son should die, the most valuable thing. You are loved, Christian. You are loved. You may not be feeling it, maybe fighting with everybody under your roof. You may be... uh, (laughs) Just not not feeling the love. Where's the love? Come on, somebody love me. You're loved. God loved you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, that's you, Christian, should not perish but have eternal life. Loved by God. But I don't deserve it. Nah, you probably don't. I'm so worried about how I don't deserve it, but I bet if I knew you and the more I got to know you, I'd say you don't either. It's not a matter of of deserve. It's a matter of Christ's righteousness being applied to our lives, we who God loves. And the result, as we wrap this up and go to the table. God's result, verses 18 through 21. Okay, so God loved the world. God sent Jesus. 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Once again, A couple of quick points. We could have made this a separate sermon, but we didn't. So here we go as we wrap this up. And and you are are, uh, more than free. The Lord will be happy if you dive into this even deeper yourself. Condemnation ceases for those who believe. Verse 18. That's the biggest takeaway, Christian. Condemnation ceases for those who believe. Jesus said, Whoever comes to me, whoever the Father gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Don't think all these layers ahead make excuses. You feel like uh, you you understand that you need to repent. You understand that Jesus Christ is, is the source of salvation. You come to Christ. In repentance and faith, you're a Christian. There is a division in people. Second, as we wrap this up, there's a division in people, sheep and goats. There are those who love God and those who don't. Repentance and faith moves us toward the light. A hardening and a hatred of the light uh, continues to move people away. And so we ask ourselves, after the big point that I hope you got, that you are loved, even if you don't even have have the weight of it hit you uh, yet, as it won't hit us until probably until heaven, Fully, but you're loved as a Christian. But then the the concluding point before we pray and, and go to the Lord's table is that there are two groups of people in the world, and that's it. There are those who do what is true that come to the light. Then those who have seen the Son of of Man lifted up. They've seen Jesus as fully, uh, perfectly human, perfectly God. They've seen him as, as not sinning. They've seen him as the substitute for their sins, and they've placed their faith in him, and there are people who reject that, and that's it. That's it. Uh, we used to sing a song in, in uh, our Sunday schools, One Door and Only One, and Yet Its Sides Are Two. You guys sing that? Some of you guys remember that? Oh, okay. One door and only one, yet its sides are two. Inside and outside, on which side are you? One door and only one, yet its sides are two. And the Christian says, I'm on the inside, and the question is, on which side are you? And, and uh, there's a free offer of the gospel. It's here right now. It's here while you're breathing air. And I would say, get saved. Come to the Lord. Receive the offering. Uh, 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 receive Christ. Uh, that's biblical terminology and Jesus said as many as believed him to them he gave the power to become the sons of God let's close in prayer Lord thank you for your word for this uh, wonderful familiar text thank you for uh, breathing this word out and having John write this we thank you for the faithful uh, translations uh, through the years of, of all of your scripture including this passage and we thank you for the reminder Uh, Thank you, especially for the reminder that uh, we are loved. We are loved by you so much that you sent Jesus, uh, who you loved, for our salvation. It's in his name we pray. Amen.